Hear the word of God from Ephesians 6. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen behind me. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am, I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. I love that picture, by the way. Completely random. Has nothing to do with the sermon, but I love it. Today's passage may be familiar to many of you. It's often referred to about the passage about the armor of God. And when I think of the armor of God, I'm just going to be honest with you. I have two immediate thoughts that pop into my mind. One, that's pretty cool. I love armor. I love swords. I love knights. I love spears. I love all that kind of stuff. My guilty pleasure to this day is still, I love to read high fantasy novels like Lord of the Rings all the time. It's sad. And I love it. I love reading stories about dragons and knights and warriors and elves and all that kind of stuff. And it makes me a big nerd, I know. Because my second immediate thought is, I am a nerd. (laughs) Yes, because I get excited about all this, but also because when I think about it, I get excited about the armor stuff. And yes, that makes me a nerd, but also when I think about it, I think it's kind of cheesy. I mean, when I picture the armor of God, I I start picturing lessons from like children's ministry or VBS. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe felt board armor pieces that you would put up on a board. I, I say felt board, and the Benfields are like, yes. <laughs> you know, talk about in VBS or somewhere, you'd put on this like armor that you'd kind of make out of cardboard or something. Be like, and you have a cute little kid, he's wearing this armor. You're like, oh, that's what you think of. And it's like, oh, so I shouldn't really get excited because it's kind of cheesy. Now, some of you may come to this passage and feel the same way. The armor of God doesn't really make sense to you because it may feel childish. It may seem light. But let me tell you that Paul did not have light, childish imagery in mind when he wrote about this. Paul did not have that. Our issue is historical. Paul, when thinking about armor, was probably picturing a Roman legionary, one of the most awesome fighting forces of that time and even of history. They were so elite and so powerful that they were able to conquer the known world. And when he was thinking about this, Paul is using serious imagery here to convey a serious and an important word. And here's the deal, guys. This is a tough topic about spiritual warfare, and I want us to really take this seriously. And I wish with all my heart for you, our people, 
the people we love and people we are in community on mission together, I want you to hear this word. So let me give you a little bit of context in this passage. Guys, for most of you, as you know, we've been in the book of Ephesians this whole summer, and we're now at the end of the book of Ephesians. We're at chapter 6. And the book of Ephesians um, can be broken down into two main parts. Number one, part one, chapters one through three. It's kind of like the theological presentation or argument. It's talking about the redeeming work of Christ and what that has accomplished. Part two, chapters four through six, is kind of the practical application of that theological argument. Part two further can be broken up, chapters four through six can be further broken into four parts. Part one, life in the church, which is kind of inward focused. Part two, living as Christians in society, which is outward focused. Part three, household living, once again, inward focused. And part four, Christians living in warfare, which is outward focused. So this passage of scripture we're in, and I close our series in Ephesians, is an outward focused look at how we're to live in this state of war. Now most of you, and I know this, is probably true, kind of might be off, kind of, it's kind of off-putting to hear this militaristic language. But some of you, whether you like it or not, you need to be aware of this. Whether you like it or not, you are, as a Christian, you are in a state of war. One nation could be like, oh, I don't believe in war. I hate war. War, I, don't, I will practice no more war. But if another nation is taking you over and conquering you through arms and forces, I hate to say it, you're in a state of war. You might say you hate war and you study war no more, but if somebody's conquering you, you're kind of stuck, aren't you? Somebody's attacking you, you're kind of stuck. And that's the reality that we're in. You might say, I don't like this militaristic language. I don't like to hear stuff like military and language of war. But let me tell you this, and this is just truth for you. We are actually in a state of war as a Christian. So now I want to break down this passage into two main points. One, it's know your enemy. And then two, know your equipment. I'll say that, know your enemy, know your equipment. Because in this war, it is essential that you know both. We need to know our enemy and we need to know our equipment. It is vital and of the utmost importance. So we'll just dive right into this. One, know your enemy. Ephesians 6, chapter, uh, verses 10 through 13, or through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Know your enemy. One of my favorite quotes from this old movie called Usual Suspects is this guy, Kevin Spacey, gives this quote. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world he doesn't exist. That's a sneaky good quote. I love it. I use it all the time. But it is. It's one of the greatest tricks that ever ever pulled. It's convincing the world he doesn't exist. And Paul is stating, he's coming from a perspective that there's no question the devil exists. There's no question there's evil supernatural forces in this world. And he's stating here the devil does exist and he is your enemy. He's stating here that there is a supernatural force that we are to contend with. That behind personal responsibility, there's a whole demonic array that loves to sow bitterness, hate, deceit, divisiveness. Now, I know in this modern age and culture, the idea of the devil might seem a little quaint, a little old-fashioned. Tim Keller, in response to this idea, this notion, states the following. He talks about a guy named Andrew Del Banco, a self-described kind of secular liberal at Columbia, and that guy wrote a wonderful book, it's called The Death of Satan. 
It got a lot of interest, it got a lot of attention. This is what he says. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with that. I'll say that again. There's a gulf that's opened up in our culture between the visibility, the known seeing, the reality of evil that people see, and the intellectual resources available to coping with that evil. This guy says that the evil that was always there is still there, but we got rid of the idea of sin. We got rid of the idea of original sin. We got rid of the idea of the devil. We got rid of the idea of all the transcendent aspects, and now we're absolutely astounded by the fact that there clearly is something beyond what we can manage or control here, and we have no way of dealing with it. He shares this illustration out of the novel um, Silence of the Lambs, which is, I'm not recommending this movie, I'm not saying it, please don't go say, Lawrence told me to watch Silence of the Lambs, I'm not saying that. But a lot of you have probably seen it, so I'm just going to go forward. In this, in this movie, there's this evil man named Hannibal Lecter and this officer. And this female officer at one point looks at the evil man and says, what could make you like this? What happened to you that you're like this? And Tim Keller says, this is a modern question. This immediately assumes you're, you're, we're only wrestling with flesh and blood. What biological thing? What sociological thing? What psychological thing? And this is where DeBanco quotes this. Hannibal Lecter says, nothing has happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. Nothing has happened to me. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in your moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say, I'm evil? DeBelco goes on to say, these words are the epitome of modern horror and the modern dilemma. It's the horror of knowing we cannot answer the monster's question. And it's this idea then that we cannot answer this question if we've got rid of the notion of a force of evil, if we got rid of the notion of a devil, if we got rid of the notion of supernatural uh, force that's behind it all, then we get rid of the notion of how in the world can true monsters and true evil exist in this world then? How do monsters exist? And we see monsters and we see evil in the world and then we don't have the intellectual resources then to cope with it. Now, we try to be, explain it away through behaviorism, sociological, psychological issues, but ultimately we see people who are just evil. We see situations that all we can explain that it's a monster and it's evil. See, this quaint old-fashioned idea of evil and of, of supernatural forces of Satan is the very attack of Satan himself that makes us think that it's quaint and old-fashioned. Do you see? See, here is our actual reality. It's found in Revelation chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but it'll also be on the screen. And this is what it says. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels, by the way, just dragon, see? You guys see where this is coming from? This is all tying together to my nerdiness. I love it. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
This is our reality right now. Satan has been thrown down, has been defeated. So know that this is about your enemy. First of all, get this. Know this about your enemy. Christ has defeated him. I'll say that again. Know this about your enemy. Christ has defeated him. He was no match for the blood of the lamb. The accuser has no more to say because the blood of the lamb was louder and stronger than anything that Satan could throw at him. But it says, woe to you, O the earth, for the devil has come down in great wrath because of his name, he knows his time is short. Here's the deal. Satan has been thrown down. He has been defeated. The work of Jesus upon the cross has defeated anything Satan could ever come up with. All of his schemes. He has won the battle. Get that. Don't forget that. But here's the reality. He's been thrown down and woe to us is the earth. Now, here's the way I want to describe this. I got this from a guy named D.A. Carson. And this is just an awesome illustration. I want you to hear this. During World War II... Towards the end of World War II, the Russians were starting to come in from the east. The Allied forces were coming up from northern Africa into Italy, and the uh, other Allied forces landed in Normandy. And it got to this point where during the end of World War II, people knew the war was effectively over. The resources, the people, the manufacturing, the, the, the nations and the allies who were all together just knew they were outnumbered, or they, they had the superior numbers, they had superior forces, they had superior resources. They just knew effectively that the war was over. They, there's no way uh, they were going to win. But the bloodiest battles, some of the bloodiest battles happened after this period. Because he was in his death throes, because Hitler and his armies... Well, they were not going down. They were, they were in the death throes of an animal. See, I want you to hear this. Satan is in his death throes. He's lost and has no claim over us. Our sins are forgiven. Christ is victorious. But some of the worst and bloodiest battles happen in our lives today, doesn't it? He doesn't go down easy. And it's in this context that Paul is saying, stand firm. He's saying to you, I want you to, don't miss this. This is reality. This is your enemy. Satan has been defeated. He no longer has the ability, the ammunition to stand up and accuse you before God because what you create, what's cast him down is the blood of Jesus. It was more powerful. So Christ, our champion, in our place, stood and battled and was victorious. Satan has been cast out, but in his cast down, in his state of being cast down, he has been cast out, and he's in his death throes. So woe to us who are still on this earth. Woe to us who are still there, because we are still facing the schemes of this beaten enemy. And that's why we are to put on this equipment later on that's coming. But get this, our enemy is defeated, so know that first about him. But two, know that he is thrashing at the end. So why are you experiencing some of the hardest battles in your life now? Why do you experience people attacking and evil coming upon you? Why do you experience some of the toughest battles? Because Satan is defeated, because he is death throes, and for, because he's been released on this earth, you need to stand firm in the faith and the equipment that God has given you. And as you stand firm, God is using that to advance his kingdom. See, he's won the battle, but now we're called to claim the land. Do you hear that? So it's in this context that we're given something and to fight this battle, we've been given something. We've been given our equipment. So number two, know your enemy. Or number one, know your enemy. Number two, know your equipment. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It takes on a whole different level of seriousness when you hear who your enemy is. Putting on the armor takes on a whole different seriousness when you hear that there is actually a force that you're contending with. That he's in his death throes. You need to put on this equipment. This is not something light for just our children to hear. This is not just something light for just for us to be like, oh, kind of gloss over. We need to actively put on the armor. Now, one word that I want to give before we break down the individual pieces of the equipment given to us is more important than the pieces of the equipment and the parts of the body that they protect is the fact that these pieces are references from the Old Testament. See, typically most of the sermons you hear about uh, armor of God is that this piece protects this because this is a vital organ and all this kind of stuff. And that's all good. Don't get me wrong. But more important than that, what, the point that Paul really wants you to get is that all these pieces are actually referenced from the Old Testament. Most of the references come from Isaiah 11, 52, 59, and Psalms. And you'll hear some of these. I'll reference them later on. But the point is that in all these references, specifically the Isaiah 59 reference, it is the Lord himself who wears the armor and fights on behalf of the people. It is the Lord who wore this armor in the Old Testament over and over and over again in the Bible. It shows, that the, uh, shows God as our mighty warrior. He is our champion who fights the battle on our behalf. Isaiah 59 talks about who's going to fight for justice, who's going to bring justice to the streets, who's going to bring justice and mercy to the land. No one, the Lord himself will gird himself up. The Lord himself will fight for justice. He went himself and fought and won the battle. This is why Paul is referencing so many of these passages. He wants us to remind us that, yes, we wear the armor, but we wear the armor that first God himself wore. We wear the armor that first God himself won war in place. Guys, the way I picture this is this, and this is just me because in my mind, like in all the books I read, the, all the good armor is armor that was worn by like cool people in the past. You know what I'm talking about? All you nerds, go with me here on this. Right? The cool armor is like, oh, this was the armor of so-and-so, you know, or so-and-so wore this armor. You know, that's, that's, that was the cool armor, the shield of, I don't know, somebody, Aragorn, or the sword of Aragorn. You know, that was, that was what made it cool. That was what made it awesome. And the idea is this, that our champion put on this armor, our King David, our warrior champion, I liken it to like, in the olden movies, like, oh, there's this movie, it wasn't a very good movie, but it was like Brad Pitt's movie in Troy. You guys know what I'm talking about? It was not a good movie. I was hoping it would be, but it wasn't. But in the, at the very beginning of the battle scene, there was these two armies, and they're like, who's your champion? This guy, big guy, comes out, and he's like, I'm the champion. Where's Achilles? And Tr Brad Pitt's character comes out, and like, he goes, charges up, and wins the battle. Everybody's like, yay! See, I want you guys to understand that there's a battle array. This image that we're having is that we needed a champion. This is David and Goliath all over again. Here's Satan and his forces accusing you, coming before you, and saying, you are nothing, you are worthless. How could you be loved ever? Look at the sin before you. Look what you've done. Look at the acts you've committed. So we needed a champion. There's Goliath who's in place of Satan, and he's speaking this, and David who comes forward. And he conquers and he wins on our behalf. He steps forward. He puts on the armor. Jesus himself, the God, our God himself, says no one will fight for them. No one will bring forth justice. I will bring forth justice. I will put on the armor and I will fight on behalf. Guys, get this. I want you to hear this. And here's the way he fought. Those of you guys who hate the militaristic language, I want you to get this. How did he fight and how did he win? Romans 12 said, by the blood of the Lamb. Romans 5 says, how is he worthy? 
by being the lamb that was slain. See, this is a backwards type of kingdom. This is a backwards type of world from what we understand. How did he win the fight? Not by having the strongest muscles, not by having um, the most military might and skills. He won the battle. He won the fight by choosing to die on our behalf. By loving so much that he said, take my record, take my life in place of theirs. He won the battle. Satan had nothing more to say because he said the one who was perfect, the one who did not deserve to die, died for us. So all these references, what Paul's referring to is, guys, don't forget, don't, don't you realize that the battle has been won by King Jesus? Jesus won the battle because he willingly laid down his life in his place. He faced down the enemy, the accuser, and said that his perfect record is now ours because of his great love for us. So before we put on the armor, know that Jesus wore it first and he won the battle. So now that Jesus wore the armor, now that we know that the armor is really cool Jesus armor, we now wear it ourselves. We now put on the victory that Jesus won. We now claim it. So the first piece of this armor is one, the belt of truth. There is a passage in Isaiah chapter 11 says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with his rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What? <laughs> I want you to get back to this idea. Here's what a belt does. Most of you are like, well, it holds up my pants. Yes, true. But a belt of a, a soldier is more than just kind of the idea of holding up your clothes, you know? The idea of a belt is the same idea we hear later in Scripture about girding oneself up, right? It's this idea of, like, getting ready to run. You know, if I, if I wanted to get ready to run, you know, I, if I'm wearing, like, dress pants, I'm like, oh, I, don't, I can't have these dress shoes on, these dress pants on. I need to be, like, girded up. I want to put on basketball shorts. You know, I need to put on these type of shoes, different types of shoes on. It's this idea, this idea of the belt is being girded up so that you're able to move, to march, to fight. It makes you ready. It holds your weapon. Without a belt, you're not ready to move. Without a belt, you're not ready to fight. And so the idea of putting on the belt of truth is to put it on what makes you prepared to move and to fight. And the Greek word here is truth. Is, is the same Greek word used in Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's this idea found translating the faithfulness in Isaiah chapter 11, the faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Faithfulness is the idea of living, uh, truth being lived out. Does that make sense? It's the same Greek word for truth that is used there in both places. And they translated faithfulness there because of truth being lived out. And this idea is what makes one ready to stand firm and to fight is truthful and faithful living. Let me explain what, that means, what I mean by that practically. If I'm living a lie, if I'm committing heinous crime and committing, committing to lifestyles of hidden sin, then I'm really not ready to share the gospel, right? Which you'll see later, that's how we fight. That's how we advance the kingdom is by sharing the gospel. So you see, the belt that makes us prepared for sharing the gospel is truthful or faithful living. Let me explain what that means again. 
What makes us ready initially with the first belt we put on is the belt of the truth, the truth of the gospel, of who we are in Christ. But it's also the truth of faithful living. What makes us ready to spread the gospel, what makes us ready to preach the word, what makes us ready to fight the fight is that we're living faithfully. Can you hear that? We're living faithfully. We're we're living true to the the calling of the Bible, the calling that Christ has called upon us, the purposes he's given to us. You know, it's, it's really hard to move in battle and have effectiveness in battle if you're not living faithfully. Am I right about that? My words would have very little impact if, if I go home and I commit crime after crime, heinous sin after heinous sin openly, and just commit to it. My words on Sunday morning would be what to you? Right? Are you living faithfully? Not only living faithfully through your actions of faithful living, but are you also walking faithfully? What makes you ready for warfare is are you faithfully living to prayer and to the word and to study and to community? That's what makes you ready, is faithful living. Right? You need to put on the belt of truth, the belt of faithfulness. Number two, breastplate of righteousness. I feel like they should have like points, like, like armor points for all these kind of like, no, nobody, okay. <laughs> While a belt is needed to prepare to move what ultimately protects the vital organs is the righteousness placed upon us, given to us by Jesus Christ. See, this idea is what ultimately prepares us to move is the belt, it prepares us, but the breastplate of righteousness, that's what protects us. That's what protects the vital organs. The breastplate is the part that comes over here. So this is all the vital organs right here. It protects your heart, protects your lungs. The vital organs, the breastplate of righteousness. And that was first placed upon us because the righteousness that is ours is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.24 says this, And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You need to put on this righteousness. In other words, we need to walk in this righteousness. We need to run from sin and hate what it is. A believer who pursues righteousness, who looks at sins and labels it correctly, is a protected believer. Let me tell you what that means by protected. Okay, guys, listen to this. By protecting yourself, by putting on righteousness, also means this, very practically speaking, is that you're walking away from sinful thoughts, activities, and proclivities. You're choosing to label sin as sin and say, I'm not going to go anywhere near there. Let me give you an example of this. Joseph and Potiphar. Do you guys know that story? Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. Joseph was able to turn away. How? Because he put on the breastplate of righteousness. Because what he was pursuing was God himself. But if you were Joseph and you were not putting on righteousness, but instead you were pursuing, well, you know, she's cute. It's okay if we talk a little, right? It's okay if I indulge in this behavior. It's wrong, but it's okay if I just walk a little that direction. How do you stay protected? How do you stay protected? Your vital organs, for those of you who are married, how do you protect the sanctity of your marriage well? Right? You put on the breastplate of righteousness. You pursue righteousness and you label sin as sin and say, I want to walk away from that. I want to stay away from that. Do you hear that? Guys, can I tell you that you need to protect your vital organs? Your righteousness, guys, there's no question. It's given to you by Jesus. You did nothing to earn it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. But how do you walk in it? How do you protect your vital organs so that you can stand firm? You put on the practice of righteousness. Do you hear me? This is not a legalistic kind of uh, 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 rant that I'm going on. I'm not saying, oh, you better better get away from everything evil in this world and run away, run away. No, I'm saying you need to protect yourself because there are certain things, certain vital organs that are just so much more precious. 
Do you hear me? You put on the breastplate of righteousness. Three, feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Isaiah 52 says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Which is, how do you translate the gospel, by the way? What's the translation for the gospel? Anybody? Good news, good deal. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the call of the Christian. This is why it's on our feet. This is how we stand firm against the devil. This is how we march and take over the land. Our feet are fitted with the gospel of peace. This is how we go forward and conquer the land. This is how we take it over. If you remember Revelation chapter 12, it says Satan was overcome by the blood of the lamb and, anybody? The word of their testimony. He was overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. That is a speaking of the gospel. The proclamation of the good news. Hear me well, people. Please hear me well. We cannot overcome Satan and by simply being good, quiet, righteous people. I'll say that again. We cannot overcome Satan by being simply just being good, righteous, quiet people. We need to speak and talk and proclaim the gospel. How do we stand in victory? How do we claim the land that Jesus has already won? We need to put our feet on, our shoes on, so we walk forward and claim it by preaching, proclaiming, and teaching the gospel news. We can't just come to church on Sunday morning, feel good about ourselves, and say, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty righteous. I'm a good person. We can't just come to church on Sunday morning and say, I'm doing good things, I'm praying. We need to teach and proclaim the gospel message. Because let me get you, let me hear this. This is our mission. This gives us significance and purpose. Because otherwise, we're just called to just go through life. That's boring. It's not enough for me. I want to advance the kingdom, I want eternal significance. I want to know that what I do in this world matters for what God's kingdom and His cause. Proclaim and teach the gospel. Be ready to march, to go forward and claim the land by teaching and proclaiming the gospel. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Four, the shield of faith. I'm going to try to kind of speed up a little bit here. Oh, I like that. Thank you. <laughs> the shield of faith, is at this time, the shields are big shields, about four by two and a half feet typically. Um, and they kind of changed warfare up at the time. They were used to turn kind of small groups of armies, but by, by putting these shields together, they can conquer and be so much more powerful on their own. They can conquer, they can stop arrows, large swarms of arrows coming. So it changed warfare. But as, as these shielded warriors changed, so did other tactics. So instead, now these archers, whose arrows were made kind of obsolete, started doing something different. They started t tying uh, pitch bags of flame to their arrows, because typically the, the shields were made of wood. So what they would do is they would tie pitch bags of flame, so kind of like flaming arrows, so that would light the, the shield on fire, so that eventually it fire our arrow or dart would hit the shield, connect to it, and burn up the shield eventually. So the shield bearers, what they would start doing is they would start covering their shields with animal hides soaked in water, so it would extinguish uh, the flaming arrow. The shield of faith is made to distinguish the flaming darts of the devil, those pesky pitchback arrows that try to light your shield on fire so that you no longer have that protection. 
Guys, we are called to carry our faith so that when Satan attacks with his lies, you can trust God. You can say that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That your hope isn't built on I try. Guys, can I tell you something? I'm just going to be honest with you. This is the answer I give when I stand accused so often. This is with my wife, even. You know, she's like accusing me of something or yelling at me about something. I always fall back in my emotional state. I fall back to, but I'm trying so hard. I do. I'm, I'm like, Gia, stop yelling at me. I'm trying. And that's what we do often in our, in our state. We often, when we stand accused, we say, I try to, I try, I try. But Satan attacks me with his lies. He can't be loved. Look how bad you are, but I try hard. You, can't, you don't have purpose. You have no significance, but I try hard. No, it isn't how hard you try. Faith said it isn't the measure of the amount of faith that you have, but it's the object of your faith that counts. It isn't how hard you try, it's that Jesus has done it all, has accomplished it all. And by faith, you hold that up when the arrows come at you and say, you're not worthy, you're not loved, you're not known. You say, no. My faith says that I'm known, I'm loved, and I have purpose. This is what you stand behind. This is the shield that protects you completely. This is the shield that you hold up and say, I don't care how many fiery darts you put. And guys, can I tell you, he's in his death throes. Is he, he is shooting away. He is firing away. Sometimes it takes the form of lies. Sometimes it takes the form of suffering that leads to lies. Am I right? What do you do when you suffer? What do you do when, when you suffer, the questions come up, the fiery darts come up? What do you do when that happens? What's your answer to that? Is your answer, well, I try hard? Or is your answer, I don't understand why this is happening to me, I'm a good person. What is your answer? How do you make do in that situation? What do you say when you suffer loss? Um, when I was... One of my old church jobs I had, I was working with, um, there's this family who I loved and loved dearly. And I remember I was out on a date with Gina and um, I got a phone call from this guy's wife. He's a really close friend of mine. We'd hang out a lot. And his wife called me and said, Lawrence, and that's all she said. She says, Lawrence, Jeff is dead. I, I, I kid you not. All I said was, what? And I said it like three times. I was the worst pastor ever then. I had no idea what to say. I just, I, I, I just was in shock. And he was just, you know, young, healthy. He had a middle school daughter and a high school son. And he was, they went looking for a house in the mountains, and he went to the back behind the house. And she, he said, yeah, she just yelled out, don't come back here, it's a little steep. And then he fell, and he died. It's crazy. And I remember just, just yelling, what, what? And Gina was like, what's going on? Is everything okay? And I just remember being like, what in the world? How could this possibly happen? And I remember then I just, late that night, I went to be with the children and I was with the two kids and then the oldest one, the son, was just crying on me. And as he's crying, he literally just looks at me and he goes, honestly, I just hate God right now. I believe in him, but I just hate him right now. Is that Okay. What do you do when those type of fiery darts come at you? What do you do when the enemy at that moment is saying, this God doesn't care? What do you hold up? What do you stand behind? What protects you? You see, here's what faith does. 
Here's what faith does, is that even in that circumstance, even though he slay me, I will praise God because still in that moment, all I have is I trust that God is good. And even though this world is full of evil, even though it stinks, I still believe that one day he will make all things right. Because if I don't believe that, then I have nothing to hold on to. And I believe that even though it's hard, even though it hurts, I have to believe that there's purpose behind everything and it's for his glory. And his glory is worth more. What are you holding up? Because let me tell you, those fiery darts happen to everybody, believe it or not, right? Suffering happens. The only time suffering will end for you is when you die. Good news. Happy story. What do you hold up? What protects you from those darts, from those arrows? Can I tell you this? Can I tell you this? That in Jesus... In Jesus, we have hope that for some reason, even though we can't see it, even though we don't understand it, there is purpose, there is meaning, and it's for eternal glory, for eternal happiness, and one day he will make every tear wiped away. That all will be made new, and all will be made right. And that I, in my human condition, can have something better than even life and suffering, even death, I can have something better. I can be known, I can be loved, and I can have purpose. That's your shield of faith. And you hold it up. Because if you don't have it, those fiery darts will get you. And they come, don't they? Number five, the helmet of salvation. And this is where it comes down to is that you can have the shield of faith. You can have the protection of your head and of your whole body. You can have it all as foundational because you're saved by the work of Jesus Christ. I said this over and over again, and I said it, kind of mentioned it in my sermon here, is I believe the human condition is this, that we all want to be known, we all want to be loved, and we all crave purpose. But the fact is, we struggle with this idea of the human condition because we all know that if we think about ourselves and know ourselves, we think, man, we are lacking. We wear masks. We hide who we really are because we're afraid if people know us, they can't love us. But in Jesus, hear this, I love that, but in Jesus, you can be known fully, all your sin all your struggles, all your darkness, all your issues, all your insecurities, all your doubts, and you can still be radically loved because he paid the price to be known and to be loved. Do you know him like that? Do you have that faith? Do you know that relationship? Can you stand in that promise? Can you stand here and say, I am known, I am loved, I have purpose because of the work of Jesus. I accept, I believe, because it's a free gift to you. It's free. There's nothing you did to earn it. And when you profess it, when you claim it, when you believe it, there's nothing you can do that can lose it. Do you hear that? The last weapon, or the last item, the last piece of equipment is the only offensive weapon we've been given. These are all protection, right? And it's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Man, that's a cool sword. Can I tell you that right now? The swords are my favorite part, by the way. You know, like, the armor is cool and all, but it's the sword that's important, right? I'd rather, like, uh, here's what I'm picturing, by the way. This is just me. 
So I'm debating, there's two different options I'm picturing. I'm picturing like a massive like Braveheart Claymore. You know what I'm talking about? Those massive, or here's who I also, I'm picturing two like samurai swords. Either way, this is awesome. It's an offensive weapon. The word of God, I want you to hear this. The very word of God given to us is the most powerful weapon in this world. Do you hear that? It's the most powerful weapon in this world because it's the very revelation of God himself to his people. It tells the whole story from beginning to end of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. It shows his glory. But I love how it says this, the sword of the Spirit. Guys, I want you to know what makes the word effective is the Holy Spirit. What makes the word effective is the Holy Spirit. Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Are you wielding the sword? Because can I tell you, if you're not... If you're not wielding your sword, if you're not bringing forth and using the sword, then you're, you're sitting there doing nothing. You're passive. You're letting the attack come to you. Was well, it the best defense is a good offense? Who says that, by the way? Who said that? Anybody know? I've just heard that before. The best defense is a good offense, right? We need to be on the offensive. We need to be in the word, knowing the word. So the, the way I kind of liken it is studying the word and diving into it. It's like sharpening the sword, getting it ready. We need to sharpen our sword, but the way we use it is, are we professing and teaching the word to our, our, our believers and to unbelievers? Are we professing the word? Are we encouraging one another with the word? Are you memorizing scripture? And guys, can, can you hear me very well on this, guys? Is, for me personally speaking, I've gotten pretty good at intellectually diving into the word. Lately, not as good wielding it. Does that make sense? We need to be doing all of it. Dive into it, but also wield it. Use it. Encourage one another with it. And the way to encourage one another is you actually need to know it. Right? It's a powerful weapon. Guys, there's a lot of christian language here to this, and I understand that, and I don't want you to miss the point in all the, if you're not here, if you're not used to the church and the Christian language and the words we're using. Guys, what I mean by this is, guys, the word is powerful because the Spirit of God makes it powerful, and the word is powerful because, guys, hear this, that it's the very revelation of who God is, the knowledge of Him, and it's powerful because the Spirit makes it powerful, so guys, read the word, dive into it, and use it to encourage one another. And lastly this, and I'm sorry I went a little long. Jesus, our champion, has won the battle, but he's called us to claim the land. He's won the battle, but he's called us to go forth. The battle is won. The big battle has been fought. Now just go claim and live in that victory. Here's what that means. Here's how Paul puts it at the very end. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Guys, the way we claim the earth is not new strategy, not new ideology. It's boldly proclaiming the mysteries of the gospel. So Waypoint Church, may you believe the good news. May you put on the whole armor. And may you boldly proclaim the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news. God, of the gospel that is true that is powerful, the good news that is the God, of the gospel that's claiming back this world. God, that Jesus in our place you conquered by your blood, 
And God, we conquer by the proclaiming of it. So we thank you, God, for your work. We thank you, Jesus, for the armor you've given us, that you wore first. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.